When you think of humility, uh, what descriptions come to your mind? Uh, I think for most of us, probably myself included, uh, maybe up until a couple years ago, um, I would say humility has to do with people that I find really good at things. Uh, maybe you, you'd even say yourself. <laughs> and those people have a, a low opinion of themselves, right? So um, even this idea uh, that we think is humility uh, you do so is also fixated on yourself. So yeah, I mean, I'm really not that great, but even that is telling us about yourself, right? And it's at the expense of truth. So if you're really good at something, so if Michael Jordan says, I'm not good at basketball, we would say, that's just a lie. You're still really good. That's just not humble. It's just not true, right? Uh, I just finished a book this week uh, by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. I read it, I think it's my second or third time. Um, It's a fictional book about... uh, a demon in the high ranks named Screwtape, and he works for Satan, and he, uh, he, he works for his father below, they call him, and he writes these informative, um, very descriptive letters to his nephew, who is a, a up-and-coming demon named Wormwood. It sounds very strange, but it's a very, very good book. And he's teaching him how to deceive Christians. So he says, hey, you've been assigned to a new subject. Here's how you're going to tempt him. Humans are very easy, and it's just, I mean, remarkably painful to read the, the insight that Lewis has about our hearts and about sin, and he's supposed to go to his subject, and screw tapes the, 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 the older demon, right? His advice to his nephew regarding humility is to let his assignment, the person that he's supposed to go to, think that humility involves rejecting truth to establish a false humility. He calls it a make-believe humility. He writes this. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe they are ugly and clever men trying to believe they are fools. When in reality, the, the scrutate, this, this demon, he knows that the enemy, who God, he calls God the enemy, right? He says God wants to turn their attention really away from themselves and turn it to God, that that is humility. It's not a, a lying about yourself or even has nothing to do with yourself. It's actually about turning from self to God. It's a self-forgetfulness, right? Humility is not opposed to truth. It's actually opposed to self-love, right? And we know this is true because if we use the definition of, well, I'm just really not good at this, or I'm just really not good at that. If you apply that to Jesus, Jesus would have to lie. Well, I'm just not a good preacher, Well, that's a lie, Jesus. You're a great preacher, right? Or I'm just not very good at helping people. No, Jesus, that's a lie. So we know it's not about humility does have to have truth involved. So therefore, I think the definition I've been taught and read is humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That is the true idea of humility. This can be seen in the life of Christ, right? He would never lie nor deceive and yet we know Jesus was the most humble man to ever walk the planet. Uh, Mark ten forty five, Jesus said this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, not to be made much of, right, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you especially see humility in the text we did last week, Philippians chapter 2, specifically in verses 3 and 4. It's, it's not looking at your, your own interests. It's not being mindful of what you want. It's not selfish ambition. It's counting others more significant than yourself, right? And yet, if you're like me, pursuing humility is very difficult because there's kind of two trap doors, right? This week I was listening to an interview about there's a a Roman gate in ancient Rome 
and they had two defenses before the gate. And one was a really big hole covered with moss that had these big spikes in it. So if you run, you run into this hole, you'd fall right into that pit and you would probably die, right? And when you saw your men do that, you'd say, okay, I guess I'm going to turn this direction. Well, on the other side, there was another pit, just a little bit more shallow. You'd fall into that and you'd break your ankle. Then you'd just be sitting ducks also. So there's two pits you can fall into. Well, with humility, there's two things you can fall into. Number one, you can either reject the idea that you are humble or that, that, that you're not struggling with it, that you're actually very, very humble yourself, which is a folly act of pride, right? I don't need this. I'm pretty humble. I know for a fact I am. So that's one way to fall. The other way is to minimize the importance of humility, right? It's essential. It's, well, I mean, I'm getting there. I'm trying. It's like, no, no, you need to pursue humility. Humility is commanded to be pursued, right? You guys probably know this text in James chapter 4 that God opposes the who? The proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you guys want to be opposed by God in your life? Perish the thought, right? So we want to be humble. So humility then must be pursued lest we find ourselves in opposition to God. As a believer, humility is not only a mark of our faith, but it's it's the evidence that faith is blooming in your heart. It's, It's the flower of faith in your life. And here in Philippians 2, verses 5 and 8, Paul is going to show us three necessary steps in the pursuit of humility. And if if you notice this, there's only one command in this whole passage. There's only one thing you have to do. The the rest of this text is, let's look at a picture. So verse 5 is the only command. Everything else is, here's the example, here's the story, okay? So first, Paul says, you must have minds like Christ, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. So this is, this is the command, right? So the entire church of Philippi was to, to be other-minded, to be this way, right? If you remember verses 2, 3, and 4, it's to be of one mind, this mind. Well, what is the mind that Christ had? Well, look at verses 3 and 4, right? We just covered it. It's other-centered. It's thinking of others more important than yourself. That's the mind that we're supposed to have, right? We talked about... You don't need self-esteem. You need other esteem, right? You should have this mind. And Paul is saying our actions and our speech work out from what takes place in our mind. Your mind is the air traffic control of what leaves your body. So what happens, what you say, what you do in life, whether good or bad, starts in your mind. I mean, you think it. That's why you do it. That's why you say it, right? So therefore, friends, real change begins with a changed mind. Probably the most well-known verse is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, right? That's, I mean, you're changed from the inside out. It happens with your mind, right? So the hope for real change for anybody is a change of mind. And it's good to know that change really is possible. I, I just heard a commercial yesterday. I told Kelly, I scoffed. It was very depressing. It was about drug addiction. And it says, drug addiction is not your choice. It's a disease. That is very unhelpful. You didn't choose it. It's not your fault. Really? Who's doing the drugs? What's that tell you? You have no hope. You just need to take medicine. You have zero hope. So not only are you not responsible, you have no hope. Well, that's just not true. The Bible says... You can have a changed mind and a changed heart. And if Christ is at the helm, you can be changed, right? There's real hope for sinners, right? Isn't that why you're here? There's hope for you, right? When Christ's government takes over your brain, takes over your mind, you happily grow under his authority. Jesus said his yoke is what? 
It's easy, right? His, his burden is light. He's not a, a hard taskmaster over you. So what our goal as Christians, as, as a pastor, as a church, our goal, therefore, for non-believers, whether very small children or grown adults, is not moral conformity. It's not just be better, do less bad things, right? You, you, they need a heart transformed. And we know that's true because just outer works of righteousness do not please God. Just ask the Pharisees. Jesus thrashed them, right? The outside of the cup is very clean, but the inside's filthy, right? It's not a moral conformer. You need a, a transformed heart. Paul says, obedient from the heart in Romans chapter 6. So therefore, friends, to be other esteeming requires another mind. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that we have the mind of Christ. You need to be born again, a mind that is wired for Christ, right? The Christian mind, therefore, must be tended like a garden. I think most of you guys probably have a garden. Every single day, I see new weeds that I just pulled. I mean, they were gone yesterday. Right? I didn't get the root maybe not last time, but that, that, that one spot, I know I got the root. I know I did. And they're back, right? You need to cultivate it every day. Well, the mind of a Christian is like that. You need to daily pull weeds of folly. You need to expose your mind to the light of God's word every day. You need to water it by prayer and meditation. And this sounds like a very small thing. Really, just my mind? Like, that's very small. That needs to change. And you, 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 I'll have good change in my life. Well, the Bible's very clear that you will. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. So if our minds are habitually on default, set on worldly things, unchristian things, just even quote-unquote neutral things, fleshly things, our mind is going to slowly go more into death. There's a story in 1983 of a Korean airliner, flight 007, which just sounds like, oh, that's a cool flight. It's not. It took off from New York City and is headed to Anchorage, Alaska. And then from there it would go to Seoul, South Korea. At takeoff, however, the plane was just one degree off flight path. Just I mean, a little degree, right? Just miss it by that much. And yet, because of that, 269 people would die. The flight accidentally flew into Russian airspace and was shot down by Soviet jets because they thought it was a U.S. spy ship. Friends, just small things like the way you think, what you fill your mind with, even just that one, one little change. It's a big change. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 says, to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. What seems like a small thing has a big impact. If you're not daily, routinely in the word, changing how you think, changing how you react, changing how you reason according to the Bible, you will slowly dart away. It's just, I mean, it's clear. Maybe you've had this thought. I'm guilty here. Man, what was I thinking? Why did I say that? Y'all been there before? Bunch of liars? Yes, you have, right? Man, how did I get, how did I get here? How did I get to this point? What did I say? How did I say? Did I just say that? That come out of my mouth, right? Proverbs chapter three, verse five. This is why you do that. Because you're not doing this verse says. Proverbs three, verse five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own what? Understandings. Because you do what you understand you should do. That's why you say nonsense things like that, right? But when you trust in the Lord, when you lean on his understanding with his word in your brain, you won't say, Bleh. you won't word vomit dumb stuff like that. You won't do that. You won't do foolish things. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit, Romans 8, 6, is life and peace. So you must have the mind of Christ. Secondly, Paul says we must know the person of Christ. So Paul goes from, okay, that's the mind of Christ. And then he says, I'm going to show you a picture. And this is what, again, we think to be an early hymn that was written before Paul. So we must know the person of Christ. And Jesus Christ has two natures. And we're going to see that in verses 6 and 7. So first, Jesus has a divine nature. He has a divine nature. Look at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So it says here that Jesus was very simply in the form of God, and it speaks of him having equality with God. Uh, the word here is the word morphe. You think of the word morph or form. Well, in, in the original language, just means not just outward form, like, oh, the form of this building, but it means inward. True is an outward expression. So what, what you truly are in the inward is what you are in the outward. So Jesus Christ truly is God, and he has the form of God, right? He, he is what God is. He is who God is. This is very important that we all understand exactly what Paul is saying. Jesus Christ was and is truly God. All that God is, Jesus is, right? Jesus isn't like God. He's not God-like. He's not pretty close. He's not a, of a similar type of essence that God is. He is God. He's the same God, right? Jesus Christ is truly God. In John 8, 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was Yahweh, I am. That was me. I spoke to Abraham, right? I spoke to Moses. That was me doing that. We have one God, three persons. And the reason why I stress that so heavily, because this text is often twisted to, uh, by non-believers to, to say the exact opposite. One of the greatest, uh, you know, we argue over colors of the carpet, uh, back in the day, it was a lot more serious. Uh, there was an argument when the greatest church history, like schisms ever, was in AD 325 over the Arian controversy. Arius was a, he claimed to be a believer. He was part of a church, and he believed that Jesus Christ was worthy of honor and praise. He was very godlike. He was awesome, right? This is the same theology that Jehovah, Jehovah Witnesses believe, that Jesus is like God. I mean, he's, he's way up there. He's the first and greatest, but he's created, right? He believed that Jesus, so he, he taught that there was a word. They, 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 this is the fight, the fight that this church had, that the, our brothers had in 300, 300 AD was over one letter. So was Jesus homoousios, which means one or same substance as the Father, same nature as God, or is it homoousios, a similar nature? Is Jesus the same as God, the Father, same nature, or see, well, he's like it. He has to be the same, right? He has to be one with God, right? If he's not the same as God, Jesus Christ is not God. So one letter makes all the difference. The Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Spirit is almighty. But we don't have three almighties, right? We have one almighty God, right? Tracking? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And Hebrews 1 shows us again that the angels worship Jesus, that God commands the angels to worship Jesus, that God calls his son God. This, week, or this, this last week I was reading Job chapter 12, that God 
tears down nations, builds up nations. He holds every breath of man in his hand. He judges the world. He knows and rules all things. Jesus does that, right? He tears down nations and installs nations, right? So maybe to put it in a helpful way, there are many words that you can express and say that because Jesus is God, he can never say. Did you know that? You can say things that Jesus can't ever utter or actually believe or be. For instance, because Jesus is God, he never has a lack. He never has a need. He never has a concern. Jesus is never frustrated. He's never stumped. He's never uncertain. He's never unsuccessful. As God, Jesus has never been unable to do anything he's ever wanted to do. He's never failed to do something. Jesus never tries. Isn't that really good news? Well, I'll try. He would never say that because he's God. He doesn't try. He just does, right? He does not fail. He cannot be resisted. He has no unfilled desires. Psalm 115 says, our God's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Jesus wants to do it. He can do it, right? To have needs is a creature word. We have needs. Does Jesus have any needs? Absolutely not. Well, why is that? Well, look at verse six again. He has equality with God, right? You guys know what an isosceles triangle is? Uh-oh, back to, back to math here. Two sides of what? Equal, good. So this is the word saying that Jesus is iso, he's similar, he's equal with God, right? He's same nature as God. Who is equal to God but God, right? Well, nobody, right? Only God is equal to God. This is what Paul is saying. We know that John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word, right? The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God, right? There's none like Jesus. So that's his divine nature. Second, Jesus has a a human nature. Look at verses six and seven again. So in his humanity, Jesus did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. This is very confusing. Like, what is that even? How do you empty yourself? What does that mean? Jesus, how did you empty? Like, you just, what does that mean? This is, very, this is very important that we understand what he's being said here. So as the eternal son, Jesus did not count equality with God, something to be grasped as a man, okay? Uh, what yours might say clung to, taken advantage of. Those are very helpful phrases. Um, and grasp is a good word, but advantage of that, that that's, the, that's what we're understanding is Jesus as a man, as the incarnate, right? When he became a person, Jesus did not cease being God. He's always God, right? He can't just un-God himself, right? It's impossible. But to fulfill his calling as a man, he didn't take advantage of his privileged position as God. He didn't count his equality with God something I'm going to use selfishly for myself. Jesus did not give up any attributes. He did not cease being God. Rather, he did not wield his divinity to overthrow his humanity. Put it this way, Jesus didn't cheat. He didn't make any shortcuts. He didn't say, oh, I'm hungry. Ah, bread. Right? I'm tired. Not tired. He didn't do that. He had to do human things, right? He never cheated because he's the Messiah. Instead, verse 7 says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The likeness of men. This is a, a shattering, just this is a stunning passage. Think, so Jesus has no needs. He's nothing like us, right? Then what does he do? He pours himself out into a body. 
right? Not parts of his deity, but all of himself. So friends, just fathom this. Jesus pours out by taking on. He empties himself out by adding on human nature. His subtraction is addition. Isn't that just stunning? He takes on another nature. They don't mix or get involved. They're separate natures, but it's one person, right? I mean, we just gloss over like, oh, yes, Jesus, he's God and man. I mean, this is just incredible. What? He became a person? The same word for form here in verse 6, the inner is the outward. It's the same in verse 7, Jesus is truly God, truly man, truly servant, right? Jesus was born, the uncreated, being born of a woman. I mean, guys, we yawn at Christmas. This is just, this is stunning. I mean, just meditate on, on this tonight. God was born and chose it. One man, two natures, two 100%, truly God, truly man. The omnipotent, born an infant. The Almighty was also an adolescent. I mean, just take your breath away, right? He lived as a true man. He was hungry. He slept. He bled. He learned. He grew. He changed. And yet Jesus never wielded any advantage he had as God for himself to gain the upper hand, to, to ease his life, right? Do you guys know that show, um, Undercover Boss? You ever heard that show? It's a very popular show. Uh, there's a UK version where uh, a CEO of, of the company he becomes just you know, a regular lowly employee. So he owns literally every person in the building, owns them all, right? Anytime he could say, you know what? I've had enough. You do not speak to me that way, right? I'm your C- I created your position, right? And yet he mingles with employees. He, he, he never pulls the card and wheels it for himself and says, I'm getting, I, I, I'm getting treated bad. CEO here, president, hello. He never, he never does that. He just worked like a regular man. He didn't use it to pamper himself to make his life better. He did not count his position something to be grasped. You see what I'm saying? But friends, how many of us would not do that? Uh, I'm the CEO. Who are you talking to, buddy? Right? Or better yet, how many of us wield our, our name, our age, education, our status, our person for selfish gain? When things don't go our way, what do we do? Uh, do you know what you're talking to me about? Who do you think that I am? And we're prone to do that, are we not? Because we love ourself. We defend self. We honor self. We promote self. So friends, marvel at the Lord Jesus here. Now, did Jesus display himself as God many times in his life? Well, obviously he did, right? That's, how, that's kind of how the disciples knew he was God, right? He was, who walks on water but him? Who can do these things but God? Who speaks like this, right? Who, demons fear him? So he obviously did, but consider this. Jesus never did it for a selfish reason. He always did it for others. Let me give you an example, a couple here. He did not turn stones into bread to feed himself but he multiplied the loaves to feed others, right? Only God could do that. On the cross, Jesus suffered and bled. He could have healed himself any moment. Just stop the bleeding. But he didn't. But yet he constantly healed and saved others. Just speaking. Alive. Healed. He just spoke. Jesus never spoke the word to call down legions of angels to to save him or help him. But he always spoke words to sustain, save, and encourage everybody else. 
Always, right? He always, I mean, they, they would say, who speaks like this man? There's a pastor in the fourth century named Gregory of Nazianzus, and I wrote this for a paper I had in school. I love this. This is, this is the sermon he preached. This is what he said regarding Jesus. He was tired, yet he is rest for the weary. He prays, yet he hears prayer. He weeps, yet he puts an end to weeping. He is sold, and cheap was the price, 30 pieces of silver. Yet he buys back the world at the mighty cost of his own blood. He is weakened, wounded, yet he cures every disease and every weakness. Two natures, one person. I mean, stunning. This is Christ. Thirdly, lastly, we must see the obedience of Christ. We must have the mind of Christ. We must see the, the person of Christ. Now we must see the obedience of Christ. And there's two things here I want you to see. First, Jesus was perfectly obedient. Look at verse 8. So he emptied himself. I take on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, right? He was just like a man. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient. The phrase here, humbled himself by becoming obedient, should just, again, grab us by the overalls here, grab us by the lapels, right? There was never a time where Jesus had to obey anybody. Right? He's one with the Father and the Spirit. There's not like a, hey, I'm the dad, you're the son. No, that's, they're equal in authority and power, right? And yet Jesus on earth obeyed, right? The ruler of the nations was ruled by his parents. He who subjects the world under his feet was subjected to his father. Jesus was obedient to God because he was a true man, Right? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says, Jesus committed no sin. We read that in 2 Corinthians 5, Hebrews 4, 1 John 3, John 8. We do this all day. Jesus never sinned. He was always obedient, right? Think about this. In his nature and his desires, Jesus enjoyed perfect fellowship with God. Through the power of the Spirit, every thought was good. Every word was good. Every desire, every emotion, every action, always pleasing to God. Never even close to sin. Never. It's perfectly obedient. So therefore, friends, what does it mean to be truly human? Let's see if you know some, if, if you know this phrase. The common phrase, to err is human, right? Okay. So Jesus to never err or sin. So does that mean that we are more human than Jesus or is he more human than us? Or how's how does that work? Because he never sinned. So maybe he's not really human, right? Well, in reality, usually we define being a man or being a human, what humans meant to be, by certain things you do, right? Certain experiences, certain things you have, things you have and haven't done, things you do and don't do, accolades, honor, right? Achievements. But rather, the Bible says to sin is to be, it's like being subhuman, when you sin, you're being less than a human being. It's demonic, right? It's scandalous. That's not what, you're not supposed to do that, right? Therefore, because Jesus was truly human, he shows us what, shows us what being a human is meant to be. You're meant to be obedient to God. You're meant to be in fellowship with your creator. To, to be obedient is to be a true person, right? So people who live apart from Christ, they are, they are not being truly a person they're just they're completely backwards from what they're supposed to be right 
And yet, as those created in God's image, because of Adam, number one, we're born sinful and willfully sin every day. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our, catch this, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even our good deeds to the Lord are not good. They are polluted, right? Friends, we are disobedient by nature and by choice. No one makes you sin, right? You made me lie. No, they did not, right? No one does that. So therefore, it is us who has, we have a real threat. Everyone in this room has a real threat of hell. Because God is just, he must and will punish sin and lawbreakers, right? Because he's good. Everyone who is imperfect will suffer judgment. And yet, though Jesus is the image maker, he became an image bearer like us, right? His obedience to to the point of death on the cross is crucial. Have you ever wondered, why didn't Jesus just appear when he was 33, walk on the wood and say, hey, I'm Jesus, and then go to the cross? Why didn't he just do that? He could have, right? I mean, theoretically, I guess, right? But he had to live a life just like you. Because you need that obedience when you were a toddler. <laughs> yeah, you did. When you were young, you need it. He needed to live an actual life to obey, to be conformed, to be perfect. So if Jesus was not obedient, you have no shot of going to heaven. Because that obedience needs to be transferred to you. You must be perfect as your father is perfect. So that's, what, that's his obedience. Let's look at the second part here. Jesus' death on a cross. Look at verse 8. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the Father sent the Son to die, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave, right? He gave his Son, right? And Jesus himself says in John 10 that I lay down my life. No one takes it. I die when I say I die, right? So think about Jesus' final day was before him all along. He knew exactly why he was on earth. He knew he was here to die. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, a sheep silent before his shears, right? He knew what he was doing. He was obedient to the point of death. He fought every temptation, conquered every obstacle that you stumble over perfectly. Friends, this is just profound. If you could choose how you would die, how would it be? Kind of an eerie question on Sunday morning. I'll, I'll just give an answer that you all accept. Asleep. Right? I think so. I like die sleep. Just eat a bunch of ice cream. Good night, kids. Love you. Good night, wife. Love you. Just done. Bellyful ice cream, that'd be all right. But Jesus didn't choose that death, did he? He didn't choose the death of old age or sickness, not peacefully falling to sleep, not even an instant death, like hit by a car, just lights out. He chose death on a cross. This is, just, this is violent, painful, shameful death. The Romans believed that the cross was only for criminals who were treasonous, It's horrid, it's shameful, you died naked, publicly, everyone gawking at you, mocking you, throwing things at you, spitting at you. It's filthy. The Jews believed it was a curse from God. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 says, to die in a tree is a curse from God. So Romans knew it was awful. Jews knew it was, who would choose that? This is terrible. The Messiah dying like that? But Jesus bore a shameful, humiliating death. It cost him everything. Yet, friends, it was this death that secures your redemption. 
Jesus bore every drop of God's wrath for sinners who have lived sinfully and for self. Pridefully, right? Galatians chapter 3, if you turn just two books over, verses 13 and 14 says this. Probably like three pages in your Bible. That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's the passage of Deuteronomy the Jews say is a curse, right? Jesus was, he became a curse for us, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, in Messiah Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So don't miss that. Jesus gets the curse, you get the covenant. He takes the penalty, you get the promise. I mean, that's unfair on an unfathomable scale. He's cut off, we are grafted in. The Father crushes the Son. He spares us. He adopts us. Jesus takes our wages. The wages of sin is death. That means physical and wrath, right? He gets, God gives the Son our wages. So he can give us the Son's rewards. I mean, guys, Christianity is the most unfair thing in the whole universe. That God will be merciful to us. Your works and your deeds will not do. For if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. There's a hymn I don't think I've ever sung before. I even think it's in these hymnals. I'm pretty sure it's not. Uh, don't know it's called. I just know that. So that's helpful. Thanks, Kale. <laughs> so I just know a stanza and it says this. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Your deadly works, your good works, cast them down. Don't even do, they're deadly. Don't cling to those. Cast them down. And stand in Christ alone. Um, if you guys have read the book of Genesis, do you guys know that really strange story of Jacob and Esau tricking their dad? You know what I'm talking about? So Isaac is their father. Esau's the firstborn, twins, right? But he has the birthright. So he will receive the blessing from his father. And in Genesis 27, do you know what Jacob's mother does? Okay, well, I really, I really like Jacob. So I'm going to clothe Jacob in some of Esau's clothes. This fur, he'll smell like him, right? And his dad is, Isaac's like getting blind. He's kind of confused. doesn't know what's going on. And he presents him as if he's wearing his brother's clothes, right? This is what the text says in Genesis 27. It says that she, the mother, clothed Jacob, quote, in the best garments of Esau, her older son, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. So he approaches his father, and the dad kind of goes, well, I mean, Smells like him, feels like him. I, I think it's him. So he gets the blessing reserved for Esau because he appeared to be Esau, right? Friends, do you see the gospel knit into that story? You do not appear before your father with anything like you. You will never get the blessing. You will never be converted. You will never have favor. You must appear in the garments of another. You must appear in the righteousness. You must be clothed in Christ. That is your only shot of standing before the Father. You must turn from your sins, put your trust in Christ, and God puts the blessing of what should be on Esau, should be on Christ, puts it on you. It was done deceitfully then, it's done righteously on the cross for us. It's by faith alone. Friends, every person, every unbeliever I've ever talked to, when I've explained the gospel to them or they've asked a question and I say, does that make sense? What do you think you should do now? Do you know what they, I mean, I could make $1,000 off these people. So I, I, I could bet money. 
What do you think you're going to do with that information? Quote, I think I'll try harder now. That is not the gospel response. It is not try harder, right? Lay your deadly doing down. Trust in Christ. Don't try, trust, right? Cast your deadly doing down. God justifies the ungodly. So friend, it's very clear. These are the steps of humility. I want to very briefly, and I mean briefly. I actually, as a pastor, I know what briefly means, 10 minutes. I want to very briefly give you two ways that today at three o'clock, when you go home or tomorrow at work or with your neighbor on Tuesday, how you can actually have this mind among yourselves. First, the life of a servant. There's no one like Jesus who has voluntarily stooped down to something like what he did. Not one of us. If the eternal son of God took on the life of a servant, there is nothing beneath us, right? You guys ever had that phrase? Man, that's so beneath me. There is nothing beneath you. As a servant, there is because no, Christ went to everything. He went to the cross for you. None of us will stoop as low as Christ. Often our flesh draws this response. I'll take this. This is what Cale does. Don't let them walk over you like that, right? They, sh- they can't talk to you like that. You guys do this. I do. You should give them a piece of your mind, right? Everyone thinks they're a good servant until we're treated like one. Then we know we're not. As Charles Spurgeon said it this way, do not desire to be the principal man in the church. Be lowly, be humble. The best man in the church is the one who is willing to be a doormat for all to wipe their boots on. The brother who does not mind what happens to him at all, so long as God is glorified. That's a servant. Secondly and lastly, to the point of death. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, right? He plunged headward into death, right? Uh, Maybe you guys have heard this saying, and as a husband, this is very much true. Um, Every husband here can say this, and you're going to because you'll laugh. Uh, everyone would lay down their life for their wives, right? Yes. But I just do not feel like doing the dishes. I just don't. I'll die, but the dishes is hard pass, right? Friends, it is where our true love of Christ, our obedience to Christ is put to the test. All of us would say, I would be a martyr for Christ, right? In our hard hearts, man, Lord, I'm going to be like that. I would die for you, Right? But who of us would take steps to be obedient to the point of death? The death of our good name, our reputation, friendships, our honor, publicly. It's scary, isn't it? You guys get scared as a Christian? I do. I get nervous publicly. Not here because you guys are all home team advantage here. But with non-believers, I get nervous. Man, What are they going to say? Even though I know what they're going to say. Oh, okay. What are they going to say? It's daunting to be a Christian. Isn't it scary sometimes? Risky, right? Ah, What's going to happen, man? What are they going to do? Jesus left all heavenly comforts, all ease, all bliss for your good. He took the darkest horror, the, the greatest shame, the most painful loss for sinners. Hebrews 13, 13 says this. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Do you know where Jesus died? He didn't die in Jerusalem, right? He died outside the camp. Do you know what's outside the walls? 
bad people. The world's out there. Wild animals are out there. There's shame out there. There's, there's no protection. There's no ease outside the walls. There's no comfort. It's dangerous out there. In Jerusalem, there's no loss. Friends, go to Christ outside the camp. Do you hear what I'm telling you? These walls of comfort we have in our house, in our church, this is easy. Where's the danger? At your work, at the store, at your restaurants, on the streets, at your neighbor's place. That's outside the camp. And Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't a commander saying, just go. Stop complaining and just go. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? I'm out here. Come. I'm waiting for you. Let's go to him outside the camp, friends. So what area of your life is Christ calling you to leave ease and to go to him outside the camp? Let's pray.